Good morning, everybody. Our scripture reading today is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. And if you would like to read along with me in the Pew Bible, the page is 855, 855, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were witnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is the word of God. Well, it's that time of year again, isn't it? <clears throat> Christmas. Who's excited? Yeah. How many of you spent the weekend getting out all the decorations? How many got lights up on the house already? All right. We're slacking a little. <laughs> I don't either. So, lights inside, not outside. No more ladders for Pastor Brady, I'll tell you that right now. Whew. We're starting a sermon series from the book of Luke. Good news for everyone. So obviously, over the next couple weeks here in the Advent season, today's the first Sunday of Advent, uh, Advent season, we're going to travel through Luke chapters 1 and 2. We'll take our traditional New Year's break, and then we'll jump back in uh, probably in February and, and keep uh, tracking our way through <clears throat> this gospel. Gospel means good news, good news. How many of you watch the news? You can admit it, you're amongst friends, no guilt. How many of you have an app on your phone for checking up on the news? Yeah, a lot of us. Um, the, the news, one of the things that probably we all agree on when it comes to the news is that we want our news to be true. And, and of course, that's the big debate, right? Which news outlet am I going to use? Which one do I think is the most accurate or unbiased or most likely to be true? The problem is, if, if you watch the news, here's what you know, what we all know is that there's very little good news in the news. And there's almost no good news for everyone. Something that might sound like good news to you, to somebody else is probably bad news. <laughs> and there's many things that are just plain old bad. The news reveals us to us, doesn't it? The news, when you watch the news, you see humanity in all of its brokenness, in all of its desperation. We see war. We see crime. We see conflict. We see hatred. You know, you watch the news for five minutes, nine out of ten commandments have been broken. Not only that, the news reveals our attempts to solve our own problems as humanity. Another law is being passed. This politician has a plan. Oh, this educational reform is happening. Oh, this athlete's going to give millions of dollars to charity and solve a problem. Good news. There's good news because there's bad news. You watch the news, you know there's bad news. 
Even the ways that we try to fix the bad news, here's what all of us know. Anybody, anybody that's been around the block a couple times knows it's just another plan, it's just another program, and ultimately it's not going to fix it. Right? That's what we know. That's what we know. Just another politician, just another law, but in 10 years we'll be talking about the same problems. We need good news. And that's what Advent is, the arrival of God, God Himself breaking into time and space, entering humanity to rescue us, to save us. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Our sermon title today is This Good News. I took that from verse 19 where Gabriel says to Zechariah, I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Good news, evangelion is the Greek word. It means a proclamation. Usually, it's connected to a proclamation of victory. When a king wins a battle, that, that's a gospel, that's an evangelion, that's good news. A king is born. That gets good news. A kingdom is coming. Good news. And that's what this good news, that's what the Bible is. It's all about a victory, a king, a kingdom who is coming, who is breaking in to rescue us. In Isaiah 41, 27, the prophet said, I, God, give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news, and that's what this story is, God keeping that promise. Gabriel is the herald, the messenger of good news. As we look at this opening to Luke's gospel, including the first narrative story, I want to see today with you that this news is historical, it's supernatural, and it is for you. Those are going to be our three points. This good news is historical, it's supernatural, and it's for you. All three of those you might be rejecting this morning. Some of you sitting, some of you watching online, you might be saying, I do not believe that this is accurate history. Number two, I don't really believe in all that supernatural mumbo-jumbo. And number three, this isn't really for me. This is some ancient book. It's nice. It's nice stories, nice Christmas carols, but not for me. So let's get into it. Number one, this good news is historical. It was written by Luke. Luke is an actual person who actually lived. He's located in several primary sources from his day and age. The book of Acts in the Bible, three other epistles of Paul mention Luke. Colossians calls him a doctor. We, we, we probably know <laughs> that he's a Greek. He's got a Greek name. He's listed amongst Greek disciples. Luke is also mentioned by church fathers Eusebius and Jerome. Luke is a historical figure writing history. One of Luke's contemporaries, a man named Lucian, basically the same name, Lucian wrote a book called How to Write History. 
And here's one of the many things that he says about how to write history. He says, what historians have to relate is fact and will speak for itself, for it has already happened. What is required is arrangement and exposition, so they must look not for what to say, but how to say it. That's a contemporary of Luke describing how to write history. Lucian will say, in another place, Lucian will say, the historian's only God must be truth. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> Luke's God is the truth, literally. Luke is writing history. He's following all the rules of a history writer. Look at his introduction, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So others have been writing about Jesus. Luke is going to take his turn to write a narrative of events. A narrative of events. He's going to compile them. And they're going to be about what? What has been accomplished among us. In other words, the Christian movement, the growth of Christianity. It's spreading. Why? Why should we believe this? Why should Theophilus, a Greek, believe some story about a Jewish holy man from Nazareth of all places? What, why, and the stories are so crazy, he was crucified. You don't follow crucified people. And so Luke is saying, yeah, it's growing, and we need to understand why. He says, many others, many others have already begun to write. So Luke's gospel is not the only gospel. We know that because <laughs> we got Matthew, Mark, and John in our Bibles, don't we? But we know that there's lots of other documents about Jesus floating around. Mark's gospel was probably written before Luke's. So did Luke use Mark? Likely, very likely, and maybe others. Are some of these accounts of Jesus maybe not totally true? Yeah, likely. And so that's why Luke's saying, I'm going to put together an orderly account. Luke is writing in the 60s, not the 1960s, the 60s, <laughs> like the original 60s, zero, six, zero. So he's writing in the 60s. Jesus died in 33. Luke is writing just 30 to 40 years after Jesus Everything the Apostle Paul wrote, it has already been written. All kinds of hymns about Jesus, all kinds of stories about Jesus. There's lots of Jesus material out there when Luke writes, and he's going to put it all together. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, he's going to use eyewitness accounts. Like I said, he's only writing 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death. Many of the people who knew and walked with Jesus are still alive. His mother might still be alive. How else would Luke, Luke know that Mary treasured all these things in her heart? We'll get there. That's coming up. Chapter 2. 
How else would he know that unless she told him that? So he's following eyewitness accounts. He says he's also using, quote, the teachings of ministers of the Word. In other words, lots of people have been teaching about Jesus, like Paul. We know from the book of Acts that Luke was Paul's basically best friend. He was with Paul on his journeys. When Luke writes from prison, he says, only Luke is with me. Luke is learning from Paul. Luke is learning from the eyewitnesses. Look at verses 3 and 4. I've been following all things closely for some time, he says. In other words, Luke is saying, this has been my life work, life's work. I am, Luke is saying, I am very familiar with the Jesus stories. Now, Luke was not an eyewitness to Jesus, but he has made himself a Jesus expert over the past couple decades of his life. I am very familiar. I am Theophilus. I am going, look at his two words at verse 3 and 4. I'm going to write an orderly account so that, verse 4, you might have certainty. That's history. That's history. Listen, this is how you do history. How do you do science? Science, (laughs) you repeat an experiment, and if you get the same results over and over, over, you've proven it scientifically, right? How do you do history? You don't do history how you do science. You don't repeat things over and over. They only happen once. So how do you prove something historically? By eyewitnesses. We can't prove scientifically the miracles of Jesus. He only did them once. We can't prove scientifically the resurrection of Jesus. It only happened once. But we can prove historically the miracles, the life, the resurrection of Jesus. How? Through eyewitnesses. Through eyewitnesses. Okay? A lot of people today say, well, I need the scientific evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Nope, you're in the wrong classroom. You're in the wrong classroom. Get out of science class and go to history class. It's better anyway. (laughs) Sorry. That's my bias. Luke is claiming to write history, not legend. Here's what, here's what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that none of them is like this. He's talking about the Gospels. He's talk- this is an essay he wrote about the Gospels. C.S. Lewis came to faith from atheism because he started, he was an expert in literature, and when he read the Gospels, he said, that's not a fable. Whoever wrote that thinks it's true, which means every human being has to wrestle with it, because if it's true for Luke, it's true for you. If it's true for Theophilus, it's true for you and for me, and we all have to wrestle with the truthfulness 
of this. You say, well, Brady, I, I just think it's a bunch of lies. I, I cannot accept these, this Bible stuff, this gospel, these gospels, they're just a bunch of lies. Pastor Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, he gives some reasons why it can't be lies. He says, first of all, the gospel accounts are too soon. That's the eyewitness problem. If, if Luke's gospel is a bunch of lies, if he's just making up stories, but the people who lived it are still alive, they, they, would, they would blow him wide open. They would say, no, that didn't happen. No, that didn't happen. There were no angels. What are you talking about? I was there. That didn't happen. Number two, the gospels are too detailed, Keller says. Too detailed. Look, look, at, look at verse five. Once upon a time, Zechariah, that's not how it starts, is it? How does it start? In the days of Herod, what is that? That's a historic detail. Luke chapter 2 will give historic details. Some of the details in the Gospels are just so, so basic and even boring. Like, why are those even in there? You don't write ancient mythology that way with historic detail. And then number three, Keller says, they're too, the Gospels are too counterproductive. Here's what he means. If I was going to write a bunch of lies, would, look at our opening story. Our opening story, the curtain opens, our hero Zechariah, the priest, enters the temple, Gabriel appears. If I was, if I was writing myth, here's how it would happen. Gabriel appears, Zechariah, the Lord has heard your prayers. You will have a baby. Well, of course he has. I've known all along he would do that because I am a great man of God who has heard everything. No, that's not what happens, is it? Gabriel shows up, says something to Zechariah, the hero of the story so far, and Zechariah's like, uh, prove it. <laughs> and he ends up not talking for nine months. Listen, stay with us. By the end of this book, the followers of Jesus are going to betray Jesus, deny Jesus, and run away from Jesus. You only write that if it's true. You only write that kind of stuff if it's true, if it actually happened. Listen, we have to wrestle with this book. We have to wrestle with the historic truthfulness of this book. Number two, the book is also supernatural. The good news is also supernatural. Theophilus, Greek to Greek. I'm a Greek. Theophilus, you're a Greek. Us Greeks, we are educated. We are scientists. I'm going to write you a historic, orderly account, just the facts. And then the next thing you know, we got angels showing up and Holy Spirit going into babies and, and uh, an old woman having a baby and muteness. Where did all that come from? Why am I getting all this supernatural mumbo jumbo in this story if it's supposed to be just historic facts? Why is that there? Because it happened. Because that's what happened. 
the, the whole story is very Old Testament, isn't it? It's very Old Testament. We got a barren couple, an old barren couple who pray for a baby, and then an angel shows up and says, you're going to have a baby. We've heard that story before, haven't we? Abraham and Sarah, Hannah, Manoah and his wife. Ooh, did I stump you? Manoah. Who's Manoah? Samson's parents, right? This story has repeated itself. This is not the first time this has happened in God's economy. But there's Zechariah. In In the history of Israel, this is an ordinary day. Every day in Jerusalem, in the temple, twice a day, morning and night, a priest goes into the holy place and lights the altar of incense, says a prayer, comes out, says the blessing, and then at night we do it again. Every day, every day, for 1,500 years this has been happening with a, with a few hiccups in there. 1,500 years. But for Zechariah, this is an extraordinary day. Because you see, Zechariah is one of 8,000 priests. He's in the Abijah group. Did you catch that? He's in the Abijah group. The Abijah group has about 300 priests, and they only work, they're only working for a week. Okay, twice a day for a week. How many times is that, class? 14. Okay, 14 times this altar's going to get lit, and we got 300 guys who all want to do it. So they cast lots, and the winner gets to go in, and he's never going in again. This is his once-in-a-lifetime. He's going to go into the temple, through the courtyard, into the holy place, not the holiest place. Okay, remember Tabernacle students, book of Exodus? Okay, we're not in the, te- we're not in the holiest place. That's only the high priest. We go into the holy place. I got two helpers with me. One guy's carrying the coals. One guy's carrying the incense. So we go in, put the coals on the altar, the incense, say the prayer, for the peace of Jerusalem, for the, for the Messiah, give thanks to the Lord, and we get out as quick as we can so we don't do anything wrong, and we come back outside, and the people are out there praying, right? They're praying, and I come out, and I give the priestly blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. Amen. Go home. It's a great church service. It takes about 10 minutes. For Zechariah, he's never done this before. He'll never do it again. Was he thankful? Was he humbled? We don't know. But here's what we do know. He was full of doubt. He was full of disappointment. He was full of disbelief, wasn't he? We know that. Christian, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever gone through the motions? Was Thanksgiving just the motions for you? You said the prayer, you gathered your family around, you held hands, you said the prayer, but inside maybe your heart was breaking. Inside maybe you're thinking of that prayer that you've been praying for years and it just feels like God has not answered that prayer. Where's God? Are you even there? Like Kiefer said in his testimony, where's God? What happens to Zechariah is straight up Daniel chapter 8. 
In Daniel chapter 8, one night, Daniel's praying, and the angel Gabriel shows up, and Daniel goes silent, and Gabriel says to Daniel, God will send his Messiah. Here, 700 years later, Zechariah in the temple, Gabriel shows up, and it's not one day, some, sometime down the road, God's going to send his Messiah. It's Zechariah. It's happening. It's going down right now. And here's how you're going to know. You're going to have a baby, and you're going to stop talking. <laughs> you're going to have a baby. You're going to stop talking. A baby boy, John, miracle baby. Look at 14. Look at verse 14. You will have joy and gladness. 15, he'll be great before the Lord, won't he? He'll prepare the people for the Lord. He'll call the people to faith and repentance, won't he? He'll be full of the Holy Spirit even from the womb. He will have the spirit and power, 17, the spirit and power of Elijah, of Elijah. This comes from Malachi's prophecy. God says to the people, says to the, through the prophet Malachi, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see, here's what every good Jew knew. They knew that before the great and awesome day of the Lord, before Messiah comes, Elijah has to come. Here's the plot twist. Zechariah, your son is Elijah. Not literally, but he's going to have the spirit and power of Elijah. He is the Elijah that's coming, that was prophesied, which means once we get our new Elijah, we can have what? Our Messiah. Our Messiah. That's good news. That's good news. How does Zechariah respond? Not well. Not well. He's afraid. He questions. How? 18 how shall I know this? It sounds innocent, doesn't it? Who amongst us has not asked that question? You're, you're, you're lying if you don't, you don't say, I, I've, ne I've never asked God that question. How will I know? We've all asked that question. It sounds innocent, but Gabriel classifies it as unbelief, doesn't he? You did not believe my words. And then the whole story turns into a comedy right in front of our eyes. Zechariah, in the Greek, it, it says, Zechariah says, I am old. And Gabriel says, and I am Gabriel. <laughs> I am old, and I am Gabriel. And I stand before the Lord, and I speak what the Lord says, and you're done speaking. That's basically how it plays out. And then Zechariah is going to come out of the temple. He's been in there a long time at this point. The text says the people are like, what's going on? I'm missing football. Let's go. <laughs> Zechariah comes out. He's got one job, one job now, priestly blessing. He's waited his whole life to stand in front of the congregation and pray 
the priestly blessing, and he's got nothing. He can't talk. The people are like, what happened? He must have seen a vision. Okay, how are you doing? How are you doing with this? Maybe you're still thinking, Brady, I can't, I can't, uh, nope, I don't wrap my head around this. I can't wrap my head around the, you, you say it's history, uh, the supernatural stuff, uh, that's okay, that's okay. Let me encourage you, keep coming back. Hear the whole book, hear the whole book, and then make a decision. Because this gospel is for you, this good news is for you. This good news is for you. Look, Zechariah should have known better. He's a priest, right? He should know his Bible. He knows the Abraham story. He knows the Sarah story. He knows the Hannah story. He knows the Manoah story. He knows all the stories. He knows all the prophecies. He knows Isaiah. He knows Malachi. He knows them all. And yet he was unable to embrace that God would be answering his prayer today. I get it. You're not Zechariah. You're not supposed to be. So far in the story, you're Theophilus, okay? You're Theophilus. You're the one the book is written to, to give you an orderly account of Jesus so that you can have certainty that everything you've been taught is true. You don't need to be Zechariah this morning. Be Theophilus. Read the book with an open heart. Can you do that? Can you embrace the good news as history? Can you embrace the good news as history? Listen, it has to be history. It is an event. The gospel is an event. Every Sunday we preach an event. We sing about an event. We sing about something that happened. It is good news. It's not good ideas. It's not a good plan. It's not a good concept. It's not even good morality. It's not a good religion. It is good news. News happens. News happens. Something is happening. As a Christian, we trust in an event. We trust in an actual person named Jesus who we believe is God, who came to earth, lived, died, rose again. We place our trust in that event. No other faith asks you to put your trust in an event. Not the five pillars of Islam, not the eightfold path of enlightenment and Buddhism, not karma and Hinduism, and not even the Ten Commandments of Judaism. All of those are something you do in order to climb the ladder to God. Only gospel Christianity says God broke into time and space and came down the ladder to you. Trust in that. Trust in that. Our culture, young people, listen to me. Our culture says you're free, now you can go save yourself. Jesus says, let me save you, and then you will be free. Listen, if, if it's you're free, 
now go save yourself, let me tell you something that the world's not going to tell you. That's not freedom. That's bondage. If you have to save yourself, that is bondage. That's enslavement. If, by contrast, this is true, if this story is true and Jesus came and he frees us, he saves us so that we can be free, that's true freedom, isn't it? What is the object of your faith this morning? What are you counting on to save you? What, what will make you into your best self? What's your source of hope? Is it something that has already happened or something that you have to make happen? Is it Jesus or is it yourself? Number, second thing. First I said, embrace the good news as history. Embrace the good news as supernatural. Can you do that? Can you do that this morning? Simple, ordinary day, like every other day for 1,500 years. But on that day, something supernatural happened. Gabriel entered into the temple and declared as the messenger of God, the salvation of God, the Holy Spirit is going to indwell baby John from the womb. These are supernatural occurrences that we have got to ask ourselves, can we believe that? Can I believe that? You see, Zechariah, here's the great irony. When Zechariah got up and got ready for church that morning, temple, church, the last thing he expected is that he would actually meet God. <laughs> when he prayed his prayer, the last thing he expected is that that prayer would actually be answered. Does that sound like you? Why'd you come to church this morning? See, some, some of you avoid God by just staying away from God. I'm not going to church. Hypocrites. I don't believe in all that stuff. Have you ever read the Bible? No, I don't need to read that. But listen, there's a lot of us, even, even Christian us's, that we avoid God by coming to church. One of the best ways to keep God off your back is to be really, really good, right? One of the best ways to avoid Jesus is to be really, really good. You are not saved by being really, really good, are you? The self-righteous Pharisees of Jesus' day, they did everything right, didn't they? And Jesus looked at them in John chapter 5 and he said, yeah, but you don't know me. You don't know me. So they had a problem. Do you have the same problem? Listen, that's why this has to be a supernatural experience. That's why this has to be about more than a time and a space. Sundays, 1030, 7210 Racetrack Road. That's my Christianity. Uh-oh. It better be more than that. It better be a supernatural experience whereby the living God indwells you whereby God has entered into you as His new temple, the Holy Spirit has come into you just as He did John. Has that happened to you? Have you had that experience? The supernatural experience of the living Christ living in you. That's a Christian. 
Not people who show up at 1030 on Sunday morning. By all means, show up. The Holy Spirit, like I, I preached a couple weeks ago, that Jesus in you wants to go to church, doesn't he? But you going to church doesn't put the Jesus in you. You have to have this experience. God's messenger enters the temple. The Spirit enters John. Listen, this story in Luke 1, it's a picture. It's a picture of what is to come. It's a picture of what is to come. Christian, when you receive Jesus Christ by faith, when a person receives Jesus Christ by faith, Christ as the ultimate messenger, even greater than Gabriel. Amen? Jesus comes into the temple of your heart. The Holy Spirit indwells you like he did baby John. That's what's happening to us in Christ. So that now we call this union with Christ. Now listen, listen. Stay with me. This, this supernatural experience connects you, when you receive Christ, it connects you to the historical Christ. Are you with me? The supernatural experience connects you to the historic Christ. The historic Christ lived. He lived righteously and perfectly. Are you in Christ? One of us is. Okay. Are you in Christ? Yes. Okay. So if Jesus lived righteously and perfectly, what does that mean about you? I too am righteous and perfect. You tracking? Jesus, the historic Jesus, died on a cross. What about you? I died with Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. The historic Jesus rose from the dead. What about you? R risen from the dead, alive unto God. Read Romans 6. The historic Jesus ascended into heaven. What about you? I am already in glory. I am seated in the heavenly places in glory. It's my destiny. Do you see it? The supernatural experience of Christ, the Holy Spirit coming into you, connects you to the historic realities so that everything that Jesus did, you have now done in Him. Everything that has happened to Jesus happens to you in your union with Him. Amen? Amen. Look at John the Baptist again, verses 14 through 17. You read that and you think, wow, John the Baptist, he was a great guy. What a great guy. I wish I could have known. Listen, every descriptor of John the Baptist is about you, Christian. He, 15, he will be great before the Lord. I'm, Brady, I'm not great. I'm, I'm not great. Jesus said, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. See, here's what John the Baptist will grow up knowing. You know what made John the Baptist great? Humility. 
He must increase, I must decrease. I, 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 I shouldn't even be taking his shoes off, right? Least in the king. You say, if, if you're sitting here this morning and you say, Brady, I'm not great. I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. I got so much. I got so many skeletons in my closet. I got so much baggage. Oh my goodness. You know what God's saying to you? That's exactly what makes you great. Because with all, when, you come, when you come to admit and confess how weak you are, how tormented you are, how broken you are, all your baggage, all your problems, all your failures, when you can openly admit all that, now you, are, you, are, you have opened the heart door to great faith and great mercy. You are great because God is great. Do you believe that? He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 15, Christian, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Yes. He will turn the children of Israel to the, to the Lord. Christian, are you called to turn people to the Lord? Yes. He will, he will restore relationships, father to children, children to father. Christian, are you called to restore households and relationships? Yes. Are you called to prepare hearts for the return, the second advent of Christ, just like John? Yes. You've got everything John had because <laughs> you've got Jesus. You've got the same exact Holy Spirit. You say, not me, Brady, not me. God's given up on me. Had God given up on Zechariah? Nope. Had God given up on Elizabeth and all of her shame? Zechariah and all of his doubt, Elizabeth and all of her shame? Were they disqualified from God's plan? Was Mary disqualified from God's plan? Simp a simple nobody girl? What about the fishermen? Stay with me through the book. Stay, stay with us through the book. What about the shepherds, the fishermen, the lepers, the greedy, the sick, the Jews, the Romans, the demon-possessed, the prodigal, the poor, the beggar? Were any of them disqualified? No. They're going to hear the same words that you're hearing this morning, that God loves you, that this, that this gospel is for you, this good news is for you. God loves you. God wants to rescue you. God has come. God has broken in. How will you respond? How will you respond? We're going to pray and then we're going to sing, What Love My God? It's a question. What love my God would bring you down to earth? That's a question. It's okay to sing it as a question. <laughs> but see if you can't sing it with a little belief in there too this morning. Amen? Let's pray. God, you have broken in, not just Gabriel, but you, blessed Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, you have come, you have made your home in us. God, I pray for the one this morning who's still saying, I, I, can't, I can't see it, I can't see it, I, I don't think it's true especially all the supernatural stuff. I just don't, I don't know, Brady. That's okay. Father, I pray that even this morning you would allow that person, 
to wrestle with this book. But more importantly than this book, wrestle with the person of Jesus. Help us all to wrestle with it. Help us all to see that we are not disqualified. That your mercy, your grace has broken into all of our lives, not just Zechariah's, not just Elizabeth's, not just baby John, but all of us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let us attach our hearts to it today. Let us receive it by faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.